Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Hey guys, it's David Bryan. Big news for our little podcast. Beyond the Pond is proud to be part of the Osiris podcasting family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans like you with conversation, commentary, and of course, lots of music. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts like Daddy Unscripted, No Simple Road, Guitar Cast with Andy Keithley, and many more. You'll hear much more about Osiris and our sister podcasts in the coming weeks. But first, let's go beyond the pond. I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And I am Ben Greenfield. You are tuned in to episode 26 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself, and on this evening, Ben, utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to go beyond the pond and listen to other non-jam bands. It's very important that one listen to non-jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans. The problem with a lot of fish fans is all they listen to is fish. And then one day they're going to find themselves perhaps being interviewed by Robert Mueller. And all they can talk about is fish. They can't talk about other bands and they clam up. They start lying. They start bending the truth. And next thing you know, it becomes very easy to see that they've been including Rush this entire time. Case in point, we've been saying this for months, guys. Listen to more music beyond fish and jam bands and do not collude with Russia. No, um, not collude with Russia. <laughs> pretty simple is, stuff here from Beyond the Pond, guys. This is um, not the 80s Cold War fantasy. Just don't do it. <laughs> so... Uh, as Dave was saying, uh, this is a very special episode. We're really excited to bring Ben on here, and we are really excited because we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of uh, one of all of our favorite jams, the uh, February 28th, 2003 tweezer from Nassau Coliseum. Um, for those of you who have listened to us before and those of you who are uh, uh, new to the podcast, just a quick overview of what we do. Um, so in typical episodes, we take a big jam. We break that jam down from a historical standpoint as well as a musical standpoint. Talk about all the kind of oddities surrounding it, uh, the tour, the surrounding show, all that sort of stuff. And then we pick a couple artists that we think thematically and uh, sonically are aligned with the song. It can kind of give you uh, a reason to jump into some other bands, hopefully turn you on to some new music. Hopefully you learn a little bit about Fish as well as some great bands here. Um, and we are very, very excited to be going into uh, this very special and very epic version of Tweezer. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this show include fully realized fish jams, musical suites, and 
This is my 2003 in review. Before we jump into everything, we wanted to welcome our guests properly. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you, guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and uh, it's pretty awesome to be here with you. And we are very big fans of Jennifer Dances as well as you, so we're excited (laughs) to have you on here as well. Um, Oh, man. As we're recording this, you are a future father. Uh, As this is being published, I think you are a new father. Do you have any advice for yourself a couple weeks from now? Oh, gosh. Uh, Message to myself in the future. Um, I guess, I guess, you know, the one thing I would say is just, is just maybe cut down on the colluding with Russia because (laughs) I I feel like, I feel like your daughter will not, um, really be happy about that. She doesn't want a father who's, who can't answer to Robert Mueller. There's really no way to justify that to a daughter. I'm sorry. It's going to make a hell of a lifetime movie though. Like 25 years on, she learned to collude with Russia. Yeah. Good call. My my advice would be to buy your fish tickets now before your daughter is born because you won't feel as guilty now. <laughs> it's funny. I've, I've been reading all these baby books and none of them have said that. Um, they don't have the real practical advice in there. <laughs> my only advice would be hang on. The first month is going to be a blur. You probably won't recall most of it. I certainly don't. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, I'm, I'm definitely... Fish shows have have prepared me for life feeling like a blur. Yeah, that's a good thing. Um, you know what? We've got a lot to talk about this episode, so I think on that note, let's cut to the quick. And let's get to the fish. Why are we talking about this jam? Well, why not? This is an absolute peak jam from an absolute peak show in the overall history of Fish. Um, This is one of my favorite jams that has ever been played. It's a 28-minute, multifaceted, symphonic jam that really serves as a high-water mark in the overall 2.0 era for Fish. Yeah, and this this is, to my mind, it's a really a distinct style of jam. So this is, you know, if you think about fish, um, often they prioritize soloing over the course of a jam over their full band jamming. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this jam, I think, prioritizes full band jamming. It's got multiple distinct sections, and every section of it almost feels like it's composed. And so you listen back to it, I think you could play this for a non-Fish fan, and they would believe that this was a composed piece. You know, totally they wouldn't be able to differentiate it from Yem or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think, like, if you, if you tried to describe some of the different sort of structures of jams that that fish have you have like the 
the, the jams that build to a huge peak, like most antelopes. You've got uh, funk jams, you know, um, including many of the, the less adventurous Fall 97 jams. You've got jams that toy around with a normal chord progression, but then go into like the relative major or the relative minor key of the jams, like a lot of modern ghosts where it'll start in the ghost key and then go into the, the major key. So then you've also got jams that kind of find one theme and then maybe play around with it for the course of the jam, um, such as the went gin. Um, and then you also have uh, those those long, noisy wall of sound experimental excursions, like uh, a lot of the stuff from summer '95, as well as uh, as the Baker's Dozen song I heard the ocean sing. What's unique to me about this tweezer is that um, I guess you consider the second part of what I consider to be uh, like a three part suite. While it could be considered a, a D major bliss jam, and certainly it's not that uncommon for Tweezer to go into D major in this day and age, that part, it sounds completely composed. It sounds like you had the whole band had like an entire song in its in their heads like ahead of time. Yeah. is isn't just Trey soloing over page, like playing like a D major chord progression. Like yeah. it really... Yeah, it's certainly unusual among Tweezer D major bliss jams. It's probably the best one that they've done for that reason. Absolutely, and I think um, when you look historically at Tweezer, it really falls into a category of <clears throat> really symphonic jams. Um, a couple that we listed here, um, just kind of for you guys from a historical standpoint, so Fall 94, of course, as well as Summer 95, and Fall 94, you've got the Banger, uh, the Live One Tweezer, as well as Bozeman, which is my personal favorite pre-97 Tweezer. Um, 95, Mud Island, Fleezer. These are uh, the one from uh, the Finger Lakes on 622.95. These are really great examples of just sectional jamming, very symphonic jams. Um, and what are some of the other ones we had here? Um, I guess we've we've also got the June 9th, two thousand tweezer from Tokyo, which is which is one that I, I think that some of those uh, Japan shows are, are so easy to forget about. But there's some incredible jams even outside of the one that everyone knows from from the fourteenth. Yes. Um, and then uh, skipping a little bit ahead in, in time, uh, in three we listed the the Tahoe tweezer, of course, which was you know a just uh, kind of crossing of a new threshold and 3.0 jamming uh and then the one from hampton that fall on uh october 20th and then uh the last one that we had listed was august 1st 2015 from atlanta yeah i mean very much like you were saying dave uh this tweezer really showcases just kind of trey contributing to a jam in ways that aren't soloing uh it's kind of like he's finding this theme this riff that's not composed, or it sounds composed, excuse me, um, and really builds this sort of full jam, uh, full band jam around it. Um, I would argue this is one of the most influential jams for the best parts of 2.0. It's got a very clear focus in terms of reaching a blissful peak, but as, as you'll hear when we play this, when it goes beyond the peak, it pushes further into this unknown uh, uncovering a very darker, uh, a lot of darker undertones that were really quite symbolic of that era. It gets kind of fuzzy. 
It does. It like does. when I think of 2.0, in my mind, every jam kind of has a thin layer of marijuana smoke on it. Not because <laughs> of the band was like that. I just I associate 2.0 with some clouds, just like some fuzzy, some dark undertones. There's just some very strange things that were going on during song timings. It's completely unique part of their history. It's in 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 a way. I remember feeling at the time that it um, when they played this jam that it felt like they had just reached this level of focus that was maybe going to kind of signal how they were going to sound from that point forward. Yeah. And then I think by by contrast, when they came back in the summer, especially when you listen to and there's so many really long jams from that summer. Um, a lot of them just they they really sound unfocused, which is not which is not a knock on them at all, but they they just kind of they really have that fuzz like you were saying and and they're they're so hazy and uh you know i still love them but uh but a lot of them are just super weird yeah it kind of takes them until that that summer tour ends in such a you know very on such a high the last Mm -hmm. five shows the tour being so strong but it kind of takes them until that point to um while i agree with you you know the jams somewhat leading up to that there are some like uh jams that don't feel very purposeful uh they feel a little bit directionless um by the end of the tour they were playing <clears throat> i would say on the, on the on the same level as they were playing here on the nassau tweezer um yeah totally agree. focused jamming um and focused on kind of what's around the corner what's possible if we keep playing for three or four minutes all as one uh a unit here um, and kind of with this in mind, we'd come up with a list of uh, some other 2.0 jams that really kind of highlight this this type of jamming that, that we hear here in the Nassau Tweezer. Um, a couple I have from that period in time, the, the end of the uh, summer tour, the Burgettstown Crossside and Painless from July 29th, the Sense and Subtle Sounds from Camden, New Jersey from uh july 30th and keen listeners here will know that that was the centerpiece of episode 15 of beyond the pond yes um the final uh day of the it festival had two jams in this uh uh, model the the chalk dust torture as well as the ghost were just really uh focused expansive they hit a peak and then they just kept going and were all the better for it We had December 28th, 2003, the Susie Greenberg. By the way, 2003 was a fantastic New Year's run, quite possibly the best New Year's run since the one they just did in 2017. We also have, the, uh, of course, the June 19, 2004 Piper, the June 25th, 2004 Seven Below, and then one of the highlights of Coventry, which got messy, but a good messy, was the August 15th, 2004 split open and melt, which is a sludge fest. Yeah, it was it was an appropriate song to play then because the band was literally splitting opening open and melting all over the stage. We just need to yeah. blow off some fucking steam. Exactly.
So, taking a step back from the Nassau Tweezer, um, kind of talking about this show and this run in general, um, you know, this jam itself, I think, would make any show uh, in the 2.0 or 3.0 era. But this show, 22803, is a huge one. I think it's arguably the best show of 2003, arguably the best show of 2.0. And I think some people, I don't know if I would necessarily argue this, but I think some people would say it's the best non-1.0 fish show the band has ever played. Um, What do you guys think about that? It's a top 25 show. Easily. Yeah, I, I would agree. I definitely, if you um, happen to be on Fantasy Tour in the years 2003, 2004, 2005, chances are pretty good that you at some point saw me trying to make an argument that this was the best two-set show Fish ever played. <laughs> I was the guy getting angry at everybody who told me that my argument was ridiculous. Are you willing to share your handle from that era? Uh, <laughs> this goes um, twenty one twelve. Yeah, it's it, it. It depends if we uh, if if, we if, I, if I down a couple before. of beers. But, yeah, exactly. String cheese Bisco incident. <laughs> yep, that was me. No, I. Um, that's one of those arguments that I wouldn't agree with it, but I wouldn't say you were completely crazy. Like, for example, if somebody went and said, "My morning jacket is the best American rock band." Mm. I don't I don't agree, but I don't think you're crazy because you can make that argument. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't I don't I don't think I really if you if you like, uh, you know, hook me up to a lie detector test. I don't know that I actually thought it was the best, but I you know, there's not that many shows in the world that have a killer set one, a killer set two and a killer encore. Um, you know, so so I think it's up there. There, it's it's on a short list that that have that. Your list well, is short. Your list is short. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I would say as well. So set one, you've got huge jams in bathtub gin and uh, back on a train. Uh, you have a big jam in um, soul shakedown party, which is also a bust out. You have a big jam in Bowie. Um, and, great walls of the cave to end set one a big jam in harry hood it's also the show where destiny unbound uh returned after 796 shows and on the note of bowie and hood being big jams uh this is kind of crazy to me um of the top 100 rated shows on fish.net only one show on there uh, aside from 228, 4498 contains a tweezer, Bowie, and a hood in the same show. There's no shows other than 228, 2003 have those three songs in the same set. And really, crazy. yeah, I, like I, I never, I, I don't know, I don't know why that's that was something that never totally dawned on me until recently. But um, yeah. the only comparable sets that I found. 61894 from UIC Pavilion has a Bowie, a Tweezer, and a Yem in a second set, and 22093 has a Tweezer, Mikes, and a Hood in a second set, and that's the Roxy show, and that's some pretty heady uh, territory. That's a good company, right? Some heady company. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty good. I mean. I don't know. Maybe you could say that the twelve five ninety nine second set has both a Mike's song, a Chalk Dust Torture, and a Jennifer Dances. Um, so maybe that's comparable. <laughs> I, think, I think you just won that argument uh, heartedly right there. I, I have no. I I can't come back. 
Um, if you if you heard a brief pause before I said that, it was because I was I was frantically trying to look up the set list of twelve five ninety nine. There's clearly a little too much salt in the gravy tonight. <laughs> Always. Always. It was savory argument. enough, guys. It was savory enough. Um, the workers have come in from their day at the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, taking a big step back here, um, again, you know, coming at the end of the February 2003 tour, um, I think that for me, I remember this, this was the first show I remember uh, following in real time on Fantasy Tour, um, and I won't share my handle from 2003 either. I, I changed it in 2009 because it was so embarrassing. Um, uh, this show was viewed immediately in the time at, as the peak of the tour, and and I, I will I'll never forget being on there uh, online, seeing Destiny Unbound, and I think it might have broken the the site for a couple of hours. Um, but you know, long term, as time has been quite kind to February 2003, this this show has really only continued to grow in reverence and. Um, Along with this, you've got the Vegas shows, Chicago 22003, Cincinnati's 2.22, Worcester, as well as the uh, tour closer on um, March 1st. These are all high-quality early 2.0 shows. They all have peaks contained that really kind of hit levels that are close to uh, aspects of 2.28, but none of them have the complete package that 2.28 has. Some bust-outs, really great song selection, flow throughout i mean i listen to this show over the weekend you press play at birds of the feather and you don't really even think about uh taking uh the show off until tweezer reprise ends and then the jams that we mentioned as well it's just got everything well, was worcester the show where they opened with yam and then they did the like side project yeah. tour yes yeah yes okay yeah i don't know um this is funny back in 2003 i was in law school and my law school was in new york city so I've been trying to go back in my head and figure this out, but I have no idea how I ended up at the B.B. Uh, King show, February 24th, which was a Monday night in New Jersey, versus this one, which was a Friday night in Uniondale, New York. Ugh. I must have had some kind of family obligation, or I had a term paper, or I don't know. But it's such a huge miss that... There had to have been some reason why I did not go to the Friday Night Nassau show. If it was a and, term paper, you have to go back and find the term paper and yeah. <laughs> see if it's yeah. worth writing. I mean, the B.B. King show has given me scars that will never be erased. <laughs> mm. So Yeah, no, you and me both. I, w- I was at both of them, and I, I mean, it felt to me like... Like, uh, you know, Nassau, Nassau was kind of like, you know, the world getting back into alignment after the B.B. King show kind of threw it off. I mean, that show makes even less sense in retrospect, given the ridiculously high quality shows that surrounded. I mean, mm-hmm. not to take anything away from B.B. King as a legend, but who the hell was clamoring to see Fish do like an hour of tepid blues jams in a hockey arena with B.B. King? Yeah, it's that's the Not thing like, is when 
Yeah, when what he, happened? I have no idea. I mean, he when he came out, I think the audience was really pumped. You know, I was really pumped. I was like, "This is great! It's in the first set." You know, yeah, for eight so, minutes. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, and then it just kept going on and on and on. And like every song went. Like one of the songs is is like twenty three minutes long or something, and it's not like twenty three minutes of like interesting jamming. It's just kind of twenty three minutes of. Trey and BB King, like both motioning to each other, like, no, 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 you solo. Right. It's not like Warren Haynes jumping on stage and putting some solos on my guitar gently weeps. Like, there's no, this didn't have any reason to work. I don't know yeah. if they met at some like obscure rock and roll Hall of Fame awards ceremony or BB wanted to get in touch with the kids. I don't know. I didn't get it then. I didn't get it now. And I felt offended. Sorry. <laughs> That show does is what's crazy about it is that show has an excellent Down with Disease opener, a great Haley's Comet, a really weird and interesting twist that uh, got a Karina Karina second song got a Karina, um, but it's just like the scars mm-hmm. of that show will never go away. Yeah, um, <clears throat> this tour February two thousand three was my first. I saw my first fish show on this tour. It was two twenty oh three, which was really crucified in 2.0 I remember jumping online the next day and I remember walking out not totally loving it um, and really being disappointed because two nights prior in Denver they got a divided sky and a you enjoy myself and the following night they got it down with disease and a mic song I was like those are the songs I want to hear I'm a total noob and I got this really weird dark jamming and simple and uh, tweezer and uh, seven below and really wild pebbles and marbles but um by 2009 2010 this was really being reborn as a peak show of uh of 2.0 because the band just wouldn't jam to save their lives at that point and um fans were clamoring for this type of improv where you just have like six or seven songs in a row that go deep um yeah that two point that certainly that 220 shows a 2.0 show that I think it 2.0 is really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's... So it's, let's it's close the very first set with an 18-minute simple and a 20-minute gotajaboo. You know, why not? Crazy 20-minute type 2 pebbles and marbles. Sure. Let's throw it against the wall and see what the hell sticks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... I, yeah, I think it did get a little bit forgotten just because of, you know, what happened the following few days. But, uh, right. but yeah, it's it, it holds up definitely holds up now and um it man 2.0 shows just look so weird on paper sometimes <laughs> um ben what did you see during this tour um yeah so i saw uh all of the follow uh, all of the shows starting with bb king's show other than worcester I, I skipped that one um and the thing is that was my midterms week um, this was the worst semester of my of my college career, uh, <laughs> mostly because of the decisions that I made that that week, and I would not take any of them back. I actually, the night of the Philly show, um, two twenty five, uh, I had to drive back to New York after the show, and I had to take a seven a.m. midterm the, the next morning. So I got back at Jesus. like three, it's and uh, yeah, I did very very badly on that midterm. <laughs> Um, but then, you know, NASA, everything just came together. Like all of my midterms were over. 
like every friend I had from every stage of my life was there. Third row seats. There was randomly like these guys uh, next to us at the set break. They they told us that um that they you know they were they were kind of older fans at that point, and they they said like they wanted to hook up some younger fans who had never gotten to see a show so close to there. So they they decided that they were going to go trade their tickets with some random people in nosebleeds, and uh, before they left. They, they like just uh, one of them just reached out his hand and gave us like a giant handful of nuggets. Oh um, I feel like these, huh. it was like the fish fairy or something. They, they were just, uh, just trying to, I don't know. There was something in the air that night. It was, it was pretty special. I remember you telling us kind of as we were prepping for, uh, uh for this about, um, uh, some of the anticipation that was, that was built up towards this show. What, what do you remember about this, like being on tour, Ben, and kind of, um, like you know in terms of what was going on in in the in the scene like directly on the ground yeah it was i I was trying to remember if there was maybe something put out by the band i was trying to look this up and i couldn't find anything but i feel like there was something that maybe one something associated with the band said in an interview or in a press release or something about this being like the anticipated show of the tour um and and whether or not that actually happened or that's you know a fabrication of my mind um there there was like a distinct energy leading up to this show it was the second to, you know the last northeast show of the tour second to last show of the tour friday night you know nassau had all this history with the island tour and uh and everybody really felt like something big was going to happen um and you know i don't think that anybody really could have predicted quite what it was going to be um you know but like the the fact that the band came out and the second song of the show the second song of the show they bust out destiny unbound which i think is such a ballsy move because you have to follow that up for the rest of the show or else it's just like the shitty show that they decided to play the most (laughs) anticipated bust out in their history um and yeah you know the rest of the like busting out Karina and then following it up with 60 minutes of BB King. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of, um, to me, and I was lucky enough to be at the Fuck Your Face show in 2012. It's kind of um, on that level uh, in the sense that when they concluded um, Kill Devil Falls and started playing You Enjoy Myself, not only was everyone freaking out because they were playing You Enjoy Myself in the first set, and they'd already jammed out Karini at that point, but it became clear to people that they were spelling fuck you. And um, the place just went insane, and that vocal jam had the um, We Love Dicks and Trey Love Dicks, and just there was so much good energy in the stadium at that point. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, you can bust out Destiny Unbound and then play a lot of awesome songs, but you can't plan for really good jamming. And like the Fuck Your Face show, what makes this Nassau show so special ultimately at the end is the playing. You know, that the, the, mm-hmm. the tweezer to play a song that is at that point in their history, you know, even the same way as it is today, their jam vehicle. And to play it as well as they did in a version that you can just listen to and I know that song note for note at this point in time I've listened to it so many times in my life um, I don't know that just says a lot about what the band was feeling at that point going in and kind of that magic that's in the air because you can plan anticipation but you can't deliver on it without you know something really special happening yeah 
So I, I think at this point, we've talked about it. We've built it up. We have a lot of other music to get to. So I think at this point, I'll let us play you a segment of the February 28th, 2003 tweezer from Nassau Coliseum.
hope that you enjoyed that extended segment of the Nassau Tweezer from 228-2003. Really couldn't resist playing a couple sections there because that really is a full musical suite by Fish. And um, musical suites are the big theme that we're going to focus on here uh, in our next segment. Um, we've got six songs for you uh, over the next uh, uh, half hour to an hour. Um, all of us have picked a couple of songs from some bands that uh, really um, featured musical suites in some of their best performances. Um, so up first, we have a band from New York City that uh, Fish hinted that they would cover this album during the lead-up to uh, Festival 8. Uh, this is television, and this is the title track off of their transcendent and historically important New York City punk rock uh, album, Marquee Moon. This is the band's debut record. Um, they recorded this after holding down a residency at New York City's CBGB Club, and they spent upwards of three years waiting for a favorable record deal while rehearsing ahead of finally recording this album. Uh, a lot of buildup to it. At one point, they recorded an EP with Brian Eno, but were unsatisfied with the results in the process, and the record was never formally released. And then in the months leading up to recording Marky Moon in September of 1976, the band spent about uh, six or seven hours a day for six or seven days a week uh, rehearsing week after week after week. And when they went into the studio, they were about as tight as they ever would be. So Marquee Moon, the album, was produced by Andy Johns, who had been an engineer for Led Zeppelin and produced Goat's Head Soup for the Rolling Stones. And his hiring was really due to two factors. Um, Electra had signed tele- television on the condition that their first album was produced by a well-known producer, and really because uh, uh, guitarist Tom Verlaine was um, impressed by his big rock guitar uh, production and wanted that sound on their record. Which, in retrospect, is hilarious to think that Alexia thought this album was going to sell. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny because it sold pretty well in the UK and then they came back to the US and I don't even think it charted. So much of Marky Moon was uh, recorded live in the studio. And a number of the tracks, including the title track here, was recorded in one take. Um, from a lyrical standpoint... Verlaine admits that he doesn't really know much beyond uh, uh, meaning in terms of meaning behind the lyrics. He was influenced by a lot of French poetry and wanted to get uh, at the consciousness or confusion of an experience rather than any sort of specific narration. Um, Many people have called this the nearest rock record to a string quartet because everyone in this album has a part and you hear all of the all of the instruments uh, working in and amongst each other in some sort of a musical conversation, especially here on the title track. Um, and that's, that's you know, maybe arguably why it might be so appropriate for Fish to cover it. But then at the same time, I guess, I mean, it seems like the biggest obstacle is the fact that they are such a two-guitar band. And right. uh, and for, for Fish, it would require so much adaptation to even make it sound anything like television. Yeah, and, you know, as we... Uh, talked in the lead segment about um, what happens when a, another guitarist gets up on stage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the hope would be maybe they would uh, uh, get Nels Klein from from Wilco to come up on stage and do this with them. That would work out pretty well. Yeah, they can get Richard Lloyd from television. He lives in Washington Heights and gives really expensive guitar lessons. He's not doing anything. Richard, if you're listening. Um, 
<laughs> I hope you're not. He'd be really insulted. <laughs> he's he's a, he's an incredible guitarist, but I'm told he's kind of moody. Anyway, um, so one thing that's fascinating to me about this album when you listen to it, I mean, early 2000s was a renaissance uh, for uh, New York City Lower East Side rock and roll, and um, you could argue in many ways that this was the most lower the most lower Manhattan album that was ever made until that point in time. It just sounds dirty. It sounds grungy. It sounds like everything I imagine of New York City in the 70s. Um, and from a large influential standpoint, I mean, artists from the Pixies to Sonic Youth to U2 to R.E.M., Echo and the Bunnymen, John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers have all cited this album as influential. Um, the Edge from U2 claiming that the guitar work on Mark Ki-Moon changed the way he thought about his guitar. Um, this is just a hugely it's, – it's a great example of a hugely influential album that didn't sell, wasn't popular in any sort of uh, manner. Um, the song that we're going to feature, so the title track is the peak of the album overall. This is really symbolic of the approach of the record, and uh, this is where the band really sought to expand the overall scope of punk rock away from power chords, really embracing jazz interplay and counter melodic guitar lines. Um, on this album and on this song, you can hear that unlike a lot of punk and even rock bands, the two lead guitarists here structure their lines like a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, Verlaine would run up the major scale while regressing slightly after each step, while Lloyd would play with a uh, dissonant melody underneath, and you just hear this kind of communication between the two. Um, near 10 minutes in length, this is multi-sectional, it's ambitious, and ultimately shocking in the sense that it failed to inspire more punk rock bands to really attempt the same type of song. But like the Nassau Tweezer, this is all about the build to its blistering peak, and uh, led by guitarists Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd, they engage in a duel that weaves in and out of melodic and dissonant tones before ultimately billowing in a very proggy garage rock brilliance. Um, if you have not heard this song, and you have heard Wilco's Impossible Germany, or if you've heard this full album and have heard and or you haven't heard the full album, but you have heard "Is This It" by The Strokes. Um, I will gladly be an old man and tell you to get off my lawn and listen to this record ASAP because there's no excuse. You should hear this album. You should hear this song at all costs. And um, I'm very excited for you guys to hear Marquee Moon by Television.
television is uh, undoubtedly, I think, one of the great New York bands of all time. Um, and the next band that we're going to introduce you to is a much less known New York band and a newer one, but one that I think that everyone out there should definitely hear. Uh, they're called Cloud Becomes Your Hand. And they are a band whose inscrutable weirdness is, I would say, perfectly reflected in their inscrutably weird name. Uh, the band was founded by a guy named, I think it's Steph Cooper, possibly Steffi. Um, in, he founded them in Brooklyn, and it was originally just a bedroom recording project. Uh, it was named after a Cloud Hand puppet that he used in his previous band's stage act. And uh, Cloud Becomes Your Hand released their first LP, which was called Rocks or Cakes, in 2014. As far as what they sound like, you could call them Avant Prague. Maybe you could call them punks on acid, but really they're a, a band that doesn't quite sound like anyone else. So you're best off just listening to them instead of trying to label them. Uh, I would recommend them for fans of Frank Zappa's avant-garde compositions or for people who like Yes and King Crimson, but wished that those bands would have taken way, way more psychedelics. <laughs> Their second LP was called Rest in Fleas. Uh, it came out in 2016, and, and like its predecessor, it sounds like you took the work of a serious composer and threw it in a high-speed blender with a couple ounces of psychedelic mushrooms. This track that we're going to play comes from that last album, Rest in Fleas. We, we can call it a suite to fit in with this theme, though it's such a kind of funhouse mirror ride that it can be hard to actually remember where in the, the thing you are at any given point. Um, so it opens with an odd metered instrumental section before finally setting, settling on a, a relatively normal sounding vocal section that has a beat and that beat is actually 4-4. Um, but it's not long before we're back off onto some weird instrumental roller coaster winding in and out of the vocal sections before they reach a final coda. Now, that description may make this sound completely inaccessible, but if you're a fan of prog rock or even some of the odd sections of Reba or Fluffhead, this will be a steady serotonin injection for the sections of your brain that love getting twi twisted like musical pretzels. And, and both of their albums are just full of stuff like this. So if you like what we play for you right here, then uh, there's a lot more waiting for you.
so that one was Garden of the Ape by the band Cloud Becomes Your Hand. And I hope you enjoyed its its very strange textured musical weirdness. Um, this next one kind of uh, also delves into the musical suite, but in a very different style. Um, this is a French composer by the name of Ravel. And uh, and I think that, you know, if you've listened to this podcast a lot, like I have, you will know that you're not hearing a lot of classical music here. But this seemed to, to fit in with what we're talking about, especially because Ravel was a huge influence on Trey. Uh, Trey talked a lot about um, him being one of the composers that he was listening to a lot when he was composing some of his early stuff. Um, so Maurice Ravel, uh, he was born in 1875, lived until 1937, and he was classified along with Claude Debussy as an impressionist composer, though both of those guys hated the title and they also both hated each other. <laughs> Impressionism is characterized by a focus on atmosphere and color, and it's often dreamlike qualities. People like to say that impressionist music sounds like a Monet painting looks, but I'm guessing that Ravel would fucking hate that most of all. <laughs> Ravel was a, a pianist himself. Um, much of his music is composed for solo piano or for piano and orchestra. Uh, this selection we'll hear is an orchestral piece. Um, it's called Le Tombeau du Couperin, um, and this is the four-lane uh, movement, um, which is... Uh, this one is orchestral, but I would actually also highly recommend seeking out the solo piano arrangement of the piece. Um, other recommended pieces, if you're interested in delving into some Ravel, uh, his string quartet, which I believe was played by the Clifford Ball Orchestra um, and is one, one of my favorite pieces of music ever written. Uh, Daphne et Chloé, Pavan pour une enfant défunt, and then any of his solo piano music, uh, as well as his most well-known piece, which is a repetitive march called the Bolero, which you would probably quite possibly recognize if you heard it. Um, so as I mentioned, Ravel is a favorite composer of Trey's. Not only was he included in the work selected for the Clifford, Clifford Ball Orchestra, but in February 2001, when Trey debuted the orchestral Gaiuti in Troy, New York, with the Vermont Youth Orchestra, he included the Pavan on the program, um, at quote, so that you can hear the music in the orchestral world that speaks so powerfully to Trey. That's That quote is from conductor Troy Peters. And yes, this was a concert in Troy, New York, featuring Trey and conducted by Troy. <laughs> um, so, so this uh, this piece um, that this uh, selection comes from, is, as I mentioned, it's called Le Tombeau de Couperin. It's a suite composed during World War One, and its title translates to Couperin's tombstone or memorial. Uh, Couperin was a French composer from around 1700. Uh, and it follows Baroque forms from 200 years before Ravel, but it has modern harmonies and textures. And I selected this particular clip because it's so close to my friend, my friend, as to toe the line between homage and just flat out plagiarism. Like my friend, it's in uh, the 6 8 um, time signature. It deals with free, frequent key changes and unconventional harmonies and modalities. And as you'll hear, there's so much similarity in the phrasing that you're almost thinking at all times that a mife is just a few bars away. So here it is. Thank you. 
so taking a break here from uh, our musical suites, um, typically at this point we would talk about new albums, but we kind of figured since we're doing kind of a big celebration of the 15-year anniversary of the uh, Nassau Tweezer and uh, really Fish 2003 in a lot of cases, um, we'd go back in time and talk about some of our favorite albums from 2003. So one of my favorite records from that year um, is uh, Songs Ohio's Magnolia Electric Company. And the song I'm going to play off this a little bit later is just that simple. Um, this album is the seventh and final Songs Ohio record. Uh, this happened before the band became, wait for it, the Magnolia Electric Company. Man, that's... I, I really hoped that Fish would just follow their lead and change their name to Big Boat, but unfortunately it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I mean, their 2017 <laughs> to 2018 New Year's Eve stunt, uh, kind of <laughs> symbolically they changed their name to Big Boat. Um, yeah, just <laughs> they changed Big their Boat identity. sailing on the soul planet. There we go. And the um, ocean yeah. is love and the wind is the music. Jason Molina is rolling in his grave right now. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> this this album, I, I would I would personally say unquestionably is uh, Jason Molina's finest work. Um, never again did his pain really come through this clearly, and never again did his music just sound so focused. Um, this album was recorded by or produced by Steve Albini in Chicago, and it's the closest uh, Songs Ohio came to really sounding like a classic rock band. Um, it's a tired, it's a weary record. It's um, really the closest that you hear Jason Molina sounding like himself. Um, there's clear reason following this record why he ne- renamed his band after this. The sound is everything he would chase for the next 10 years of his life. Um, and over the next 10 years, Molina would uh, unfortunately slowly and rapidly drink himself um, uh, to death. The result of an alcohol addiction that he developed in his early 30s. Uh, and on this record, he never sounded so clear-eyed, so focused, nor so ominous um, and empathetic. The opener of this record, Farewell Transmission, really sets the tone in a way like how Out of the, Out of the Weekend does for Neil Young's Harvest. To me, this sounds like pulling out of a rest stop at 1 a.m. in the middle of eastern Montana. It's just so isolated. It's so solitary and haunting, yet it's determined to push you through the night. Um, that it ends with a very steely-eyed uh, just the word listen from uh, Jason Molina is really no coincidence to me. Um, moving through the record, Riding with a Ghost really continues the Neil Young theme, sounding like something off of Time Fades Away. It's very sloppy, it's rollicking, and it's um, one of the few moments where it sounds like alcohol has a true grip on the record. Um, the album and perhaps Molina's entire legacy of songwriting probably peaks with the song Just Be Simple, um, which is a song I'm going to play here a little bit later. Um, this is a song that really summarizes his artistic intentions and focus in a way that few artists are really ever fortunate enough to realize. You, you just hear everything that Molina wanted to be in this song. Um, it's a song that I hope uh, uh, will, will be played at my funeral. It's just so simple and so beautiful and so clear. Um, I hope I hope you live forever. Thank you, thank you. I um, yeah, thank you. 
<laughs> um, a lot of podcast episodes, though. Lots of podcasts. <laughs> um, so many jams go beyond the all the better. All the better. Um, if you end up, if you live forever and I don't, you have permission to continue beyond the pond without me. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so later in the record, songs "Almost Was Good Enough" and "Hold On Magnolia" are really the peaks of side B. Um, here, the songwriting becomes more reflective. It's kind of closed off. It's inward. Um, and by the end of the record, it's clear that what Molina is suffering with and uh, uh, without serious help, he's going to have a very difficult next decade. And, and, and he absolutely did. Um, as the frontman of a band that never quite made it, Molina really stumbled through addiction until it became too much. And he unfortunately died at the age of 39 in 2013. Um, the line, you might be holding the last light I see before the dark finally gets a hold of me, really summarizes everything that would be Molina for the rest of his life. And um, we talked about this this band and this artist in episode 15 when we talked about the Camden, or excuse, yeah, the Camden Sense and Subtle Sounds. We were talking about discordant live, live runs, and we were talking about uh, the live album that they would release uh, as Magnolia Electric Company in, in 2005. Um, and I would just implore all of our listeners to listen to uh, the work of Jason Molina, the work of Songs Ohio, and uh, later Magnolia Electric Company. So we're going to listen to Just Be Simple off of Magnolia Electric Company by Songs Ohio. playing that uh i would certainly implore our listeners also to listen to uh as much jason molina as they can because he is an epic 
songwriter who was gone far too soon. So I'm going to discuss an album that came out in 2003 that's about as far a cry from Songs Ohio as you could think. I'm going to talk about the album Echoes by the band The Rapture. We're going to play House of Jealous Lovers, which would have to be the Rapture song. So to fully understand the Rapture, one must look back to the uh, rapturous dance punk craze of 2003 that was allegedly all about, quote, getting the indie kids to dance again, as opposed to having them stand still with their arms crossed at concerts. Me, I danced at plenty of any variety of shows. But it was uh, the early 2000s stereotype of, you know, your arms crossed, staring at the stage, saying, what do you got for me? But dance punk was all about rocking that hi-hat, getting you to uh, take your wallet chain and swing it around. So the Rapture were seen as uh, the flagship band of the DFA label. And yes, that is the duo of Tim Goldsworthy and James Murphy that would eventually birth... Uh, James Murphy's LCD sound system. Now, had you gone back to 2003 and told somebody that a decade later, LCD sound system would be playing arenas and the rapture would be kaput, they would have no reason to believe you. So the rapture's trick and the trick of most dance punk acts, some of which at the time included Franz Ferdinand and the comparably forgotten Radio 4, was to Mel kind of to meld lo-fi punk rock with floor-on-the-floor disco beats, rocking the hi-hat for all it was worth. And The Rapture, they did release some uh, decidedly scronkier EPs prior to hooking up with DFA. But the 2002 single House of Jealous Lovers, which is also included on Echoes, that's what got tongues wagging. It was essentially the anthem of the entire dance punk movement. But before James Murphy mentioned them, they were very noisy and very sloppy. And in fact, the first time I saw the Rapture live was in June of 2003. I think it was one of LCD Sound System's first shows. Uh, they opened that show. I think they played for 40 minutes and they had about six songs. Then the Rapture get out on stage and they opened with the cover of the psychedelic first song, Dumb Waiters. And it was to this day the loudest show I have ever heard. Louder than Swans, louder than Mission of Burma. I had foam earplugs in and I had to use my hands to cover my hands with the foam earplugs because I was in that much pain. The live show was quite a shambles in June of 2003. So when Echoes finally came out in the United States in September of 2003, it got the royal treatment. It was an epic 9.0 from Pitchfork and they had the editor-in-chief write the review, glossy magazine spreads. But part of the problem was that it had already been released in England on the UK for nine months, and it had even leaked on the internet in full way before that. So when it came out in the States, it was kind of an anticlimax because anyone who had already wanted to hear it totally had. And they spent the summer of 2004 touring with uh, The Cure and Interpol, actually. So is that was actually a good record? I'd say Yeah. I mean, the combination of scrappy punk rock with the finest 80s synthesizers that James Murphy's money could buy. It was cool. It still is cool. I don't think it's aged very well. Yeah, well, they, you know, I, I feel like I'm uh, 
I'm like a good test audience for whether it's aged well. Cause I, for some reason I was a big LCD sound system fan for a while, but, uh, but I, I never listened to the rapture back in the day. And so I actually put on this album when we were preparing for this episode, um, and unleashed it on my fresh ears. And I don't know if it's the fact that, um, that, you know, the album actually hasn't aged all that badly or maybe, maybe I have aged very badly, but, uh, but it sounded great <laughs> to me. So I had, okay. So. I had a similar experience over the summer when I was reading Meet Me in the Bathroom and I was reading about yeah. James Murphy glowing about them and I was like, why have I never listened to this record? And I threw it on and I was like, oh, this is early LCD sound system. I feel like I'm in college again, but I still really like it. Yeah. the I mean, the songwriting is good, certainly. I mean, for me... I was living in the East Village and going to law school in 2003, so it kind of has a lot of nostalgia and is very evocative of that era. And they kind of, they didn't help their case for longevity because they didn't release the follow-up until the fall of 2006, which is essentially four years after Echoes had been completed. And that album, Pieces of the People We Love, is arguably better than Echoes. It's way more like Remaining in Light, Talking Heads than Donna Summer. But by then, I mean, dance punk was kind of laughable. Nobody really cared. And then the, the last Rapture album came out in 2011. But by then, their bass player, Maddie Safer, was long gone. And the Rapture, which is basically the name for frontman Luke Jenner's solo project, it was fine. But really, the Rapture were kind of typical of most of the bands come from like the early 2000s New York City rock boom and that they put out a really important debut record that the British mags like careened themselves over. And this is followed by crushing hype they couldn't live up to. There was some drug abuse. They put out non-committal follow-up records, infighting, and then they broke up. And that's kind of, I mean, I mean, technically the Strokes are still together. Interpol's still together. But, I mean, none of those bands put out anything nearly as good as their first record. Yeah, 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 it's the same way all those bands featured in the book, meet me in the bathroom. I think like the rapture were, were very emblematic of those acts, but we're going to play you house of jealous lovers to take you back to 2002, 2003 when dance punk was the next big thing. So here we go.
so for our next uh, 2003 album selection, I picked out one by Aphex Twin. This is an album called 26 Mixes for Cash. Um, and as the title suggests, this is an album of remixes, and there are 26 of them. And I can't tell you how much cash he ended up getting, but uh, you know, Aphex Twin is a man who does not shy away from showing off his sense of humor. Uh, and the, the song that I selected is called Journey. So you probably know Aphex Twin if you know him from his two iconic selected ambient works volumes, volumes one and two from early in his career. Or possibly you know him from his insane music videos where kids wear masks of an incredibly creepy Richard D. James, which is Aphex Twin's actual name. Um, or possibly you know him from his delicate, gorgeous piano piece called the Avril 14, which Kanye West sampled in Blame Game. Chances are you haven't heard 26 mix, mix, Mixes for Cash, which, as I said, is a remix collection that he released in 2003. And it was the last release that he did under the Aphex Twin moniker until he came back with Cyro or Ciro in 2014. And you should change that because not only is 26 Mixes an essential collection of tunes, but it's almost a stretch to call it a remix collection at all. I mean, yes, some of the tracks cue closely to their source material, but in a lot of other cases, like, for example, Disc 2 Highlight Flow Coma, which sounds almost like it's in 3D, like inhaling you and spitting you out with every single beat. He borrows a few notes here and there from the original, but mainly he creates a totally new concoction. Aphex Twin is a master of both atmosphere and of beats, and this album is one of the pinnacles of his achievements in combining both of those talents. So where on other records his atmospheres generally come from synths or from analog instruments, here his paintbrushes are other people's songs, though he does add a ton of synths and other instruments in addition to his drum beats. So, for example, check out his remix of Gavin Bryars' Raising the Titanic, which is a droning late classical work. Richard D. James, a.k.a. Aphex Twin, builds an atmospheric tapestry that's kind of similar to the original, but then he manages to seamlessly weave in this insane, intense drum beat that goes solo for a couple minutes without any hint of the original Raising the Titanic, and it's to a dominating effect. And then there's this track, which is called Journey, uh, and it's a remix of, of a group called Gentle People, which is uh, a band from Aphex Twin's own Reflex Records. Um, and the original is kind of this, this sort of like loungy 60s style thing, um, but his remix of it, aptly enough, takes you on a sonic journey. And it's got a riff that in some ways reminds me a tiny bit of Nassau Tweezer's signature riff with its its upward octave pitch shifting. Um, then there's also, uh, he does a take on Heroes, the classic David Bowie song. And what he does is he takes Philip Glass's orchestral work reworking of the David Bowie song, and then he overlays the, the crazy isolated vocal from David Bowie's original, which I would actually also recommend listening to that isolated vocal from Bowie's original if you can hear it, because it's so much weirder than you would ever expect uh, just based on hearing the full Bowie song. And the way that he combines Bowie's vocals with Philip Glass's orche orchestra just creates the, the most eerie effect and you have to hear it 
So this whole album, all 26 tracks of it, is thrilling listening. And over the course of two hours, he showcases almost all of what he does well. I wouldn't say it's necessarily his best album. That, I would say, is, is Richard D. James's albums, uh, the Richard D. James album, um, though others prefer the selected Ambient Works albums. But this one is definitely essential, so I highly recommend checking it out. And this track, as I mentioned, is called Journey. all of our listeners to to check that out here um so get back into our main segment of the night so we're talking about musical suites here and um i've got the lead track off of one of my favorite bands of the last uh probably 10 years um their third album this is tame impala's let it happen off of the record currents which came out in 2015 this is a really multi-sectional artistic shift for the band um, and really probably one of my favorite songs that the band's ever made. And um, of note, this is a song I've been uh, trying to get on Beyond the Pond for uh, at least two or three episodes, and we finally figured out a way to make it work here today. Um, so for all intents and purposes, Kevin Parker is Tame Impala. He's the lead singer, uh, lead songwriter, performer, producer. He has a touring band, but at the end of the day, the decisions and oftentimes the performances of each instrument comes down to Parker. Um, think of him much like you would Adam Grandshield by uh, of the War on Drugs, and also please drink now. Um, drink. <laughs> <laughs> so Parker wrote, recorded, and played on all the instruments, uh, and produced and mixed everything on Currents. This is his album. Um, following a two-plus-year tour in support of 2012's excellent record Lonerism, which I would say is probably. Um, my favorite record of Tame Impala's and uh, Parker's biggest artistic achievement to this point. Um, he then began working on Currents, which would be released in mid-2015. Uh, the entire album was produced at Parker's Beachside House in Western Australia. And uh, just say that again, the entire album was produced at Parker's Beachside House in Western Australia. And think to yourself how great life could be if you were a uh, touring musician who was successful. 
in the same way as the record Lonerism, uh, Parker quickly found himself obsessed with recording this record, falling into really deep isolation to make sure that the album progressed. Um, he finds that he lives his best life in isolation. He rose uh, midday. He would swim in the ocean, casually drink and smoke throughout the day, finishing his work uh, on the record late in the night. And you hear the flow on this on, on this uh, album, and you really hear a young mind pushing himself through experimentation and risk taking. Rough life. Sounds yeah, it's it's a funny thing. It's it's like you think about people recording albums in isolation. You think like Bon Iver, you know. Yeah. And uh, this is it's such a funny thing that that this album, which is so big, is is all just done by himself. It doesn't sound lonely at all. It doesn't. But at the same time, you can just hear someone like obsessing over every little turn of phrase in a in a song. And um, yeah, totally. You know, you can really hear him. Um, to me, when I think about this record, I think about him just like, you know, coming in from swimming in the ocean and hanging out, having a couple of beers. And like it's suddenly 11 o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And he's just got this music blasting in his house and there's nobody within miles to bother him. I think he was obsessing over Phil Collins. No Jack required on this album. OK, I can see that as well. Mm. Um, so at 51 minutes, it is a bit of an exhausting record uh, and really without any trace of guitar it often feels more like a ch- more of a chore to get through than it should be I do enjoy a lot of aspects of this record um, but it uh, is not my favorite of his um, it was however my fourth favorite record of 2015 because its highs are really high and there were moments throughout that year where I found I just simply couldn't stop listening to it um, the section of Let It Happen uh, from 4.30 to 5.15 is probably my favorite uh, aspect of the entire record. It's really sonically engaging, it's really surprising, and it's really telling um, in its overall re-listenable quality. Um, the record itself, it's thematically about transformation and transition, and you hear it through each of its tracks. The sense of constant movement, pushing forward really adds to the overall exhaustion of the record and it's not entirely reflective um uh it's more forward focused it really he's thinking about what the next step is um so kevin parker as i said he slaved over this record he really changed major aspects of it right up until the end of the recording sessions he set a deadline for himself originally of january 2015 but the record didn't ultimately finish until just before it was released um, notably, he claimed it was unlistenable just a month before it was released. Um, that said, Ian Cohen of Pitchfork uh, compared the album favorably to both Kid A, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and Loveless. Three of our really? favorite. He did. Yeah, he did in the review. Uh, three of so our favorite they, records. So they use Ian Cohen for something other than shooting on a 2000 indies band and writing about emo? <laughs> <laughs> It was uh, Mark Richardson wasn't available that week. Okay. Um, <laughs> so much of this album was inspired by Parker's obsession with Fleetwood Mac during the writing period, as well as an accidental mushroom trip where in which he found himself listening to the Bee Gees staying alive while considering its psychedelic qualities. Um, and he contributed much of the inspiration of this album to Mark Ronson. And in fact, Parker had contributed to Uptown specials. So the dance music is very prevalent here. The lack of guitar and, um, ultimately overall, it's a, it's a very engaging, very, uh, unique, 
um, uh, and very, you know, uh, re-listenable artistic moment, even if some of it is a bit exhausting. Um, I would definitely recommend anyone who enjoys the uh, Nassau Tweezer here to um, give a listen to Let It Happen. Uh, really excellent song here. Something's trying to get out And it's never been closer If my take Brian, thank you uh, for educating the masses about Tim and Paula. Of their three records, I think I definitely listened to the second record, Lonerism, the most. I know for a fact that Mike Gordon listens to it, because the Mike Gordon band has been playing the song Mind Mischief in their shows with, uh, I guess you could say, varying degrees of success. But what I'm going to talk about now in terms of musical suites is one of my favorite bands, this is the band Bell and Sebastian, and the song we're going to talk about is Your Cover's Blown. Initially, Bell and Sebastian were uh, a quintessentially fey group of Scots. Their music was quiet, 
literate, wispy, and really designed to be listened to by sad boys and cardigans, sipping tea in perpetually rainy parts of the United Kingdom. If you can recall the scene from the John Cusack movie High Fidelity, where Jack Black turns off a decidedly wussy-sounding song in order to blare uh, the Katrina and the Waves song, Walking on Sunshine, the song you turned off was Bell and Sebastian's Seymour Stein. So none of this means that they weren't always a great band, because they were. Uh, the earliest Bell and Sebastian records display a range of literate pop smarts, nearly unheard of in mid-'90s indie rock, and uh, Stuart Murdoch, He's the front man, ostensibly the face of the band. He wrote the most songs and he sings most of them. But he's aided by compatriots and uh, singer-guitarist Stevie Jackson, Sarah Martin, and initially Stuart David and Isabel Campbell, both of who have uh, have left the band since. I think currently they employ uh, seven full-time members. And kind of much like Fish has a 1.0, a 2.0, a 3.0, Bell and Sebastian also has somewhat of a Bell and Sebastian Mach 1 and a Mach 2. So the first era of Bell and Sebastian is generally considered to run from 1996 to 2003, which consists of a total of four studio albums and numerous EPs and singles. This is a band in the great 90s British tradition of often relegating some of their best songs to singles and B-sides. Much like the tune they have called Lazy Lion Painter Jane, which I would argue sometimes, but have enough to drink, I will say that song is the musical apex of Western civilization. Now, people completely love their debut album Tiger Milk and the follow-up If You're Feeling Sinister, and with good reason. Both are amazing top to bottom. Uh, the follow-up... The Boy with the Arab Strap was slightly weaker, and by album number four, Fold Your Hands, Child, You Walk Like a Peasant, was the epitome of eh. So it took a step back and they retooled. Original band members left, new ones arrived, and with 2003's Dear Catastrophe Waitress album, this kind of felt like a second coming out party. They were no longer wallflowers. This was a big pop record. It also coincided with Bill and Sebastian becoming a very solid live band, which is never something they really aspired to in the past. And this album was produced by Trevor Horn, who's the 80s god responsible for Video Kill the Radio Star. Yes, is 90125, ABC's A Lexicon of Love, just stuff that ruled MTV in the early 80s. So Catastrophe Waitress was a great record. The 2006 follow of The Life Pursuit was even better. And in between those two albums, they released the Books EP, which featured the song Wrapped Up in Books, and Your Covers Blown, which Stuart Murdoch quite accurately referred to as their disco bohemian rhapsody. And the fact that the band once responsible for shy boy ditties like the stars of track and field and the state that I am in actually made a very credible sounding six minute disco song is extremely impressive. They realized that the secret to their career longevity lie in transformation and killer live shows. And that's what they're at at this point. I know they actually just put out uh, two recent fantastic EPs that got uh, called how to solve our human problems, parts one and part two. And if you enjoy the idea of four pasty white guys from Vermont playing cow funk, you really owe it to yourself to listen to seven even pastier Glaswegians playing straight-up disco jams. And this song, it goes from the disco part to the fast part, back to the disco part, 
It's a pure sweet. It's fantastically produced, and it's a joy to listen to. So right now we're going to play Your Cover's Blown by Bell and Sebastian. So how do we know each other? And how do you have my number? Well, why don't you guide me? You be the driver. Say what you want and leave your shiny home And you should do what you want and write a little poem That's a pretty excellent selection from Bell and Sebastian, and uh, and I, for one, love their uh, their their pastiness and all their shy boy ditties. Uh, but I also love your covers, Blown. Um, this next uh, artist and selection kind of takes us in a little bit of a different direction with the musical suite. Uh, this is a, a, a guitarist by the name of William Tyler, who I believe you guys talked about in episode five um, in in uh, reference to the Alpine Tweezer when you were talking about dad rock. Um, Correct. Very good. Yeah, that was that was just off the cuff. I have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of every selection. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm happy to have you guys quiz me anytime. Um but uh, yeah, so so William Tyler, just to give a little bit of background for those who uh, aren't familiar with him or haven't heard that episode, uh, William Tyler is a Nashville native, and he got his start in two great 90s bands, Lamb Chop and the Silver Jews, um, if it's fair to call either of those 90s bands. Uh, Lamb Chop, for one, just released one of the greatest albums of their career, uh, Flotus. Uh, it just, is fair to call the Silver Jews potentially the greatest rock band in America, but you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, whereas those those two bands kind of tilt a little bit more towards maybe alt country, um, William Tyler's solo debut, "Behold the Spirit," which came out in 2010, leans much closer to the fingerstyle Americana of John Fahey. He developed this sound, this this solo acoustic sound, on 2013's Impossible Truth, which interwove some elements of ambient music and psychedelia. Um, and then 2014's Lost Colony EP, from which this track that we're about to play comes, uh, it, it just opened up a whole new world for William Tyler. 
So William Tyler was the son of musicians, and I think he's demonstrated both in his music and his DJ sets, which uh, which I've been lucky enough to see him do around L.A., um, that he has a hugely diverse blend of musical tastes, and it really shows on this EP, as well as the, the 2016 LP, which followed it, which is called Modern Country. Uh, he plugged in, played some electric, and played with a full band that included a pedal steel guitar player, um, and he incorporated elements of psychedelic music, country music, and even kraut rock. Uh, he covered a song on this Lost Colony EP that's called Carussel, which is by Michael Rother of uh, the, the classic kraut rock band Noi. So on this on this EP, his, his sound changed, but so did his compositional style. So this track, which is called Whole New Dude, it's actually the the only new original on this album. So it's it's a three song EP. Uh, the other song, the, aside from the the Michael Rother cover, is a full band adaptation of a solo song from his previous LP. Um, but it covers a, a number of distinct movements before launching into a killer guitar solo. And, uh, you know, William Tyler, he's shown us that he is capable of a lot of different kinds of sounds. And and I hope that he continues to really develop his capabilities, you know, in the full band setting, uh, because he's he's one of the best, I think, finger style acoustic guitarists on the planet. But uh, but he is really capable of, of doing so much more than that. Um, So enjoy this one, which is called Whole New Dude by William Tyler. show we're sad to see uh this one end this has been a really fun episode to record um we talked at the top here about the tweezer from 228 2003 we all can agree one of the best fish jams played in 2.0 perhaps one of the best fish jams played ever and we focus today on musical suites so some of the songs that you heard were television's marquee moon uh, cloud becomes your hand Garden of the Ape, uh, Ravel's Le Trombue de Couperin. Did I pronounce that correctly? My French is not up to, to par. 
No, that was that was perfect. All right. Perfect. Um, finally, we did um, Tame Impala's "Let It Happen," Bella and Sebastian's "Your Cover's Blown," and William Tyler's "Whole New Dude." And we also featured um, some albums that we uh, all were into in 2003. We talked about Songs Ohio's "Magnolia Electric Company." The Rapture's Echoes, as well as uh, Aphex Twins' 26 Mixes for Cash. So just a reminder, you can always find us on social media. Probably the quickest way to do so is on Twitter. We are at at underscore beyond the pond, one word. We've got a Medium page. It's medium.com slash beyond the pond. And we have our big Spotify playlist that we try to update Right before, right after each episode goes to air, that's just under Beyond the Pond podcast songs. So we basically attempt to put in everything that we can. If it's on Spotify and we featured it, we will put it in. In terms of our publishing structure, generally we publish every other Tuesday because, speaking for me, Tuesday is Miley's favorite day of the week. It's got no feel, it's not a hump day. It's not Monday getting to work. It just sits there. So we try to give you something to look forward to every other Tuesday. Absolutely. And um, really just want to uh, take a pause here. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us, for joining us on this journey and uh, talking about the Nassau Tweezer and all this great music. This has been really excellent, man. Yeah, guys, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, It's been a total, total joy both to prepare this episode with you guys and then uh, also just to hang out virtually like this and talk about all this music. So thanks for having me. Seriously, it has been a very good time. I've uh, enjoyed this greatly. You know, and uh, in our conversations, we've uh, we've talked about potentially uh, some future episodes, so... This might not be the last that our listeners here have been. Uh, you are welcome back at any time here, man. Oh, thanks a lot. We'll crowdsource it. If they like you, we'll have you back on. If not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So give me a thumbs up or a, a thumbs down. Um, we try. Choose the appropriate emoji. <laughs> <clears throat> so on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And I'm Ben Greenfield. So come back in two weeks. We will join hands, play lots of non-jam bands, and we will go beyond the pond. Osiris. 